This week's episode is brought to you by Ed Academy. Up until now, the size of your marketing budget, not the quality of your product, has been a key factor in deciding whether or not you make it into schools. Ed Academy, the new interactive education marketing platform, wants to level that playing field. Developed by their expert team with over 11 years education marketing experience, Ed Academy gives you all the tools and expertise you need in order to get your product out there and in front of teachers. You'll learn the tricks of the trade through their interactive online marketing and sales lessons, as well as industry expert interviews, plus direct one-to-one access to their expert marketing team to ensure your success. Say goodbye to big marketing budgets. Visit edacademy.co and join the education marketing revolution. Arabic is the official language of more than 27 countries and there are more than 400 million speakers of the language worldwide. Yet in the US, for example, less than 1% of students study Arabic. Studies have shown that those who speak a second language not only earn more, but are in higher level positions than their monolingual counterparts. And there's no shortage of studies that point to the benefits of students at the K-12 level learning a new language. The National Research Council in 2007 found that children who study a foreign language show greater cognitive development in areas such as mental flexibility, creativity and higher order thinking skills. Qatar Foundation International inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators, connecting them through effective and collaborative learning environments inside and outside the classroom. Qatar Foundation International builds bridges across cultures by increasing the number of K-12 students in the Americas and the United Kingdom with a good knowledge and understanding of Arabic language and culture by increasing the number and quality of Arabic programs in state and public charter schools in the United States and other countries. Qatar Foundation International supports the teaching of the Arabic language through grant giving and programming activities while increasing and professionalizing the supply of highly qualified teachers of Arabic, thus raising the visibility of a growing profession through grants, professional development and free online resources. For more information on free teaching materials and available grants, please go to qfi.org and ispeakarabic.com. This episode is brought to you by the Mickelson 20mm Foundation, a non-profit based in Los Angeles, California, that supports and invests in leading-edge entrepreneurs, technologies and initiatives with the potential to improve access, affordability and student success in higher education. In 2016, 20mm launched the Mickelson Runway, the world's first accelerator dedicated to supporting innovations in higher ed and career training. Both were founded thanks to the generous support of renowned spinal surgeon Dr. Gary K. Mickelson and his wife Isla. Visit 20mm.org and mickelsonrunway.com for more information. Hello and welcome everyone to this sixth edition of the ASU GSB Summit series on the EdTech podcast. My name is Sophie Bailey and this is the podcast dedicated to bringing together the spectrum of learning and talent innovation from around the world. So do let us know where you're listening in by dropping us a voicemail on SpeakPipe or on your phone and emailing via the edtechpodcast at gmail.com. This week, we're getting into the ed innovation landscape with extensive research conducted by Navitas Ventures with their edtech census. I've also been listening to podcasts about the Shift Commission and their insight into the future of work. 
I was particularly interested in how our current mortgage and insurance structures are currently too tied up with past models of long-term employment rather than self-directed gig economy stuff, which I can relate to. I also took a peek at the Pearson and Nesta collaboration on future skills, which forecasted the top 10 most likely jobs for growth to 2030 in the UK and US, as well as skills in demand during the same period. I was pleased to see artistic, literary and media occupations in the UK top 10 jobs, as well as teaching and educational professionals. This week, the same week that President Trump allocated 200 million US dollars to STEM education focusing on women and people of colour, I have also been talking to some educational professionals from Denmark, Poland, Finland and Singapore about their views on how STEM is taught, ahead of a panel I'm moderating for LEGO next month. You can see some of my notes about the various approaches on the EdTech podcast blog. If you're keen to find out about EdTech trends, don't forget to check in with partners Innovate My School who document this in their January content calendar. And of course, before that, there's Innovate EdTech in November in London. So the Ed Innovation landscape, what can you expect? In this episode, we speak to Patrick Brothers, CEO of Navitas Ventures, on the global EdTech census, which has mapped over 30,000 education companies from around the world into various EdTech specialisms, plus extra conversations with Scott Kinney, Senior Vice President at Discovery Education, and Matthew Johnson, Associate at Cooley LLP, to give us the lowdown on K-12 and legal landscapes around education innovation in the US and globally. And what's more, there's additional market mapping content from the ASU GSV Summit team, including Michael Moe's fantastic keynote from this year's ASU GSV Summit, plus presentations on the best in class featuring speakers from Finland, China and Singapore. For all this and more, join our weekly email or check in via the ASU GSV Summit website, asugsvsummit.com, where the whole series is listed. But first, before we kick off, here's Deborah Quazzo with the GSV Cap perspective on the Ed Innovation landscape to set us up for this week's episode. We're seeing critical movements forward across a whole host of areas. Certainly machine learning, artificial intelligence, all those are getting an enormous amount of attention, both in the learning landscape and in the human capital talent landscape. I think we're early on. Um, there's everything from automated grading applications to um, data analytics of learning outcomes happening. I, I think we're, we're in the very early innings of seeing what transformations are going to occur through the continued use of AI. But I think that's obviously an area to watch and obviously an area in which we're seeing a large number of companies, both startup as well as mature companies, develop the very very sophisticated product very rapidly and acquire where they don't have internal capabilities acquiring early stage companies. So clearly a really, really important area. We see enterprise and professional learning and talent as sort of being in the HR tech space. And so I think Striver actually is a good example of where you're seeing enterprises beginning to adapt and adopt emerging technologies and apply them for better talent outcomes and for better training outcomes. And we, we see this train and retain cycle in the enterprise and in the workforce, both in the enterprise as well as in the gig economy. Lots of machine learning applications being applied to improving recruiting. I think it is a very busy market on the recruiting side of things where where remarkably the market has seen, if you think about it, very little. there has been very little progress um, to improve the screening and the recruiting process and the time and the man hours spent on sifting through candidates to, to fill job applications. And so we're seeing lots of companies looking to apply 
machine learning, artificial intelligence in the in the recruiting process. I think you'll certainly see some winners emerge. You'll certainly see some quote traditional players apply it to their traditional funnel of screening. It'll help the manual process improve on the recruiter side, but but just lots of activity there for sure. And then I think some of the same within the enterprise, within enterprise learning, some of the same phenomenon we're seeing happen in K-12 and higher ed, like personalization at the enterprise where corporations are beginning to realize very quickly that training and learning are becoming core components of, you know, both their employees need because of the rapid change happening on job requirements. So I think that we're seeing on the ed tech side, um, Navitas um, from Australia has has done has made a huge effort to map out the global ecosystem, both a crowdsourced effort as well as their own research efforts to identify who the key players are in the education technology landscape. We were thrilled that they launched that initiative at the ASU GSP Summit in May this year. They put out a terrific white paper that really lays out that entire universe. I think that that is a great effort going on. I think what is exciting, and I think Navitas is sort of um, emblematic of that, is that we're seeing a lot of sort of global initiatives. Uh, There's a group out of Finland, 100 Ed, with a capital ED at the end, where they're actually creating global centers of excellence around education technologies. We'd be interested to see the, the sort of the HR tech, talent tech piece of this sort of added into the overall picture. And maybe GSV will actually be the be the ones who try to sketch that out as we look to, to write our next white paper in the learning and talent technology space. But I think it's really interesting to see the amount of mapping happening on a global basis as opposed to, to people just sticking only with their indigenous countries and and viewing learning and talent technology as being very sort of parochially local. Thanks, Deborah. A big shout out to the ASU GSV Summit, Ed Academy, Qatar Foundation International and the Mickelson Foundation for sponsoring this week's episode. If you're enjoying the series, don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes. Okay, here we go. Episode 85. And let us know what you think via Twitter at Podcast EdTech and at ASU GSV Summit. Have a great week. So I'm delighted to be here with Patrick Brothers, the CEO of Navitas Ventures. So welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Patrick, Navitas have definitely made quite an impression on ASU GSV Summit this year. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Yeah. And um, if I understand correctly, your main initiative or announcement this week has been around this EdTech census and looking at where are the main areas of development for educational innovation and I think you've broken that down into, is it seven parts or eight, eight parts? parts yeah. Eight parts, okay, which I have here. But perhaps you could just give us sure. a kind of whistle-stop tour of that. Yeah, great. So, yeah, our main focus for ASU GSV this year has been twofold. One is launching the Global EdTech Census, which is a obviously a global initiative in 12 languages, the 12 most spoken languages around the world to really understand from what we hope will be over 30,000 companies around the world, how they're thinking about shaping the future of education. That follows on from some research that we launched this week as well, which is our global EdTech landscape. Uh, We're up to version 2.0. Yep. (laughs) A hundred days ago, we launched the global EdTech landscape with 1.0. We looked at 
2,000 companies 100 days ago. This week, we've been looking at 5,000 companies, which is around $40 billion Who's US. doing all this work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's you. It's a lot of work. No. <laughs> yeah, there's a big team behind. Yeah. Um, in fact, that links to, you know, Navitas Ventures is part of um, the broader group Navitas. And Navitas is in 50 countries around the world. And in each of those cities, we've recruited two people who work in our colleges and campuses as what we call venture scouts. And those venture scouts are in cities all around the world, Nigeria, Vietnam, China, Russia, the US, and they also explore through the communities that they're in and look for what innovation's happening in those cities. So we're kind of fortunate to have a hundred folks who are in cities all around the world looking for education innovation and bringing it together. We have also focused on just the major data sets that are out there for the moment, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's not enough. And we we really want geographic diversity. So that's a very interesting, well, it's a huge and very interesting project, but it's on the supply side. So it's innovating companies and what they're up to and where they're focusing their time. Of the countries that are involved in your report, do you kind of break down what's happening where as well? Or is that kind of the next step? Yeah, it's part of the next step. We've started to look into that, but uh, a lot of the landscape at the moment is still very much biased to the US, to Australia, the UK, China. We do have great coverage on, but we, we want real diversity. We want a global perspective, a really proper global perspective. So that's why we launched the census. That's why we made it multilingual. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And about this time last year, I interviewed, goodness me, I'm trying to remember her name now, but the lady from, she basically went on a journey from France. She was right. a research student. Have you come across her? I'm not sure. She went all around the world and documented some med tech projects oh, that were right. happening as well. But there are things popping up all the time, aren't there? Lots of accelerators. I noticed one just start in South Africa and there's certainly one in Nairobi and all over the place. So, and then in terms of the eight, it's like an eight step program mm. almost. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, it follows the um, sort of learner's pathway. Is yes. that right? We use some AI technology to cluster those 5,000 companies into what turned into 23 clusters of innovation. But 23 clusters is just too many to get your head around. Yeah. And when we started to look at it, we noticed that there was a pattern and that this innovation covered the entire student life cycle. And it was really important for us to take a student perspective on this. We thought that, and we wanted to you know, inspire all of the founders out there to you know, really be empathetic and take a, take a student, a learner's perspective. So we mapped it out against what we call the next generation learning life cycle. We bucketed those 23 innovation clusters into eight steps. And, you know, this week's been about getting feedback on that. And we've had some awesome feedback, some areas that we know are right and we need to deepen and some areas that we need to focus on a bit more and find out what innovation is happening. So the, the ones we've got currently are Create, which includes the design of learning and creation of content, Manage, which includes technological solutions for service efficiency, Discover, which includes student recruitment admissions and enrolment, Connect, which includes digital systems to bring better educational experiences to students, Experience, which includes using the new technologies in education, such as simulations, robotics and virtual reality, Learn, which includes powerful new educational models 
operating outside of traditional boundaries and credential, so credentialing systems and finally advanced, which includes using new technologies to match people and jobs. And of those, the most amount of investment was with Learn, including powerful new educational models. So that's probably the broadest description. So can we dig into that one a little bit and what you into found Learn. there? Yeah. yeah. Learn is where we clustered all of the companies and institutions that are trying to find new models for combining all the different parts of learning to deliver. The easiest example in Learn that we all know well now is boot camps. Boot camps is a great example where somebody thought they could compress the timetable, it didn't have to be unaccredited, we could be, it could be more affordable and that it needed to be much more linked to a job at the end. Yeah, so ten point four billion invested in, in in dollars there, and what what were the areas that people said pushed back or said, okay, let's have more of this? Yeah, one of the most fascinating areas that people have focused on this week have been has been the credential step. The narrative that we've heard is that there's a lot of innovators trying to innovate from within education out. There's a lot of more technology inspired entrepreneurs who are trying to innovate from the outside in. But both of those groups tend to agree that the credentialing step could fundamentally change how we think about delivering education. If all of a sudden we start thinking about skills, not degrees, for example, Mm -hmm. and if there's a more innovative and open way of recognizing, badging, credentialing those skills, that might fundamentally change the way we think about delivering, if you like, education. So that step was really called out by a lot of people is a real game-changing step if we get it right. I can't say I dug in enough to truly understand it, but I've seen some articles around about blockchain with regards to that, I think. So, you know, actually sort of having that ability through peer-to-peer to, which is what we've been doing for eons in terms of references, but I suppose doing that in a more um, substantive way uh, might be quite interesting in that space. Yeah, look, we've spent a lot of time with the team at MIT who developed block certs which is the most promising, it looks like, standard for credentialing uh, learning. It's a great company that we met here, uh, Learning Machine, who is, if you like, commercializing that open source certification. It it is a great example. I mean, we we think blockchain, at least the word and technology, is overhyped and overplayed and people aren't focusing enough on what the problem is we're trying to solve. And many talk about it as a hammer looking for a nail, but... (laughs) But there's no doubt that there's a serious issue, especially in emerging markets like India, like Africa, where we need to protect um, the credentials that are awarded and be able to give the learner and the employer um, a really simple and easy way of verifying credentials. That's that's really timely because I just interviewed the CEO of Open Classrooms here and, and he said that the countries that he sees taking the courses on their platform, all the ones that you imagine, so, you know, UK, US, France, etc. But they've had massive growth from Morocco, you know, as they realise like digital skills, a great way to kind of uh, close that skills gap and there aren't that many universities. So having that and being able to you know have credentialing through that platform is quite powerful for them yeah i think it's a great example we we our frame of reference is the us it's australia it's the uk it's it's canada and it represents such a small portion of the learners around the world i heard this week that there is a a one billion formal learners in the world and if education becomes scalable and it becomes borderless then we're talking about a whole different market opportunity here than the one that we're necessarily thinking about today. 
One question. So obviously this week has been about Navitas Ventures and about what you're doing on the educational side. What's the kind of core part of your business? And I'm imagining you're here to connect with new ed tech startups and just to kind of really connect with that scene as well. Yeah. So, you know, Navitas started in 1994 and founded the Pathway Model which was about a different model of bringing international students into universities in Australia, the US, UK and Canada and giving them a gentle but highly effective transition through the freshman year into, into sophomore. That's now you know, an enormous business. We're partnering with 40 universities around the world. We have around 20,000 students that start each year on that journey and that'll continue for some time. You know, the U.S. Uh, brings one million international students abroad each year to study and it's forecast to double over the next five to seven years. That needs innovation, but Navitas also decided that it needed to dedicate some time and some energy and resources into looking over the horizon as well. And that's how we started Navitas Ventures. And Navitas Ventures' remit is to look over the horizon, but also to stay connected to the core business because there's a whole spectrum of innovation. This week, I've met some fantastic businesses who I've made hundreds of introductions back into the core business because they're fantastic tools and technologies and platforms and ideas that will help us do what we do today better. We've also met some amazing businesses. Learning Machine is a great example. Blockchain is a whole other way of thinking about innovation. With teams in 50 countries around the world, we think we're really well-placed to you know explore innovation and connect it into the to our business and to others and how did you get into navitas ventures and what you're doing now what was your own learning path well i started with navitas about three years ago really with a remit to help navitas grow and innovate and navitas ventures was a big part of that agenda so personally i've decided to kind of lead that for the next period until we work out where we need to focus that's part of why we did the global ed tech landscape. Once we've got a feel for that, then we'll start to bring on some more entrepreneurs in the US, in China, um, Australia, that they're probably where we'll focus first and with our venture scouts as well. Amazing. And um, But what was your own education like as well? Were you born and bred in Australia? And Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Going right back now. <laughs> right back. Yeah, no, I studied in Australia. I like to think though that most of my learning is the type of learning we're trying to develop now learning that I initiated that wasn't through formal qualifications. The first thing I did when I joined Navitas was Udacity's machine learning course. I wanted to kind of really challenge myself with a skill that was apparently part of the future and understand what it was going to be like for a student going through one of those journeys. And I learned a ton, not just about machine learning, but about how challenging it is to learn in this new online environment. Yeah, yeah. I I, I imagine it's incredibly demanding if you have a full-time job as well. (laughs) That's right. That's the understatement of the year. In terms of people listening in, you know, we have everyone from sort of K-12, higher education, startups, investors, and all sorts in between. So uh, what would your message be to them? And you know, if people are looking to connect with you, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, sure. I think my message and my takeaway here is that we really need to take a learner's perspective to everything. It's really tempting to take an institutional perspective and technology is so focused on tools and platforms and the like. I think we, we need to take a learner's perspective, if you haven't already, to shadow a student. 
spend some time following a student, following their day to really deeply understand the problems that we, we can overcome with all this. How can they get in touch with us? So navitasventures.com is our website. And for all of the founders out there, we'd invite them to complete the Global EdTech Census. It's an open source project. So it's at globaledtechcensus.org. We've already covered around 15,000 companies around the world and we've got a really ambitious target of 30,000. So uh, we want to make sure we've got every single education innovator on the map. So please um, help. And on that front, so you've got some quite cool data visualizations. Are those in real time? Are they? uh, Yeah, that's the plan. It's hard to share such sophisticated uh, visualizations. Was that that your work after the machine learning? No, no, no. But it did inspire me to reach out to a company in San Francisco called Quid, who used some artificial intelligence. In fact, that was a really important part of the project in that we didn't want to use the old lines on the maps or the old rules or the old language to organize all of this innovation. We wanted to take a new approach that was highly scalable and that clustered organically. It didn't you know, require someone saying that's a K-12 bucket or that's a higher ed bucket. We just wanted to erase all that and start with a blank sheet of paper. It's fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you. I am here now with Scott Kinney, who's the Senior VP from Discovery Education. So welcome, Scott. Thank you. Great to be with you. So I suppose just to kick off, what's your kind of mission here this week and what kind of meetings have you had and what have you spoken about to all the various people who are congregated here in Utah? Yeah, GSV is such a a unique uh, time of year and a unique conference. So First and foremost, we always get excited for GSV because it's a time for us to share some of our district partners. And so we had a panel yesterday um, with Virginia Beach, Virginia, and uh, the chief academic officer and their director of strategy, uh, along with Roanne Salisbury in North Carolina, who talked about that connection between curriculum and technology and how one supports the other and kind of that, that synergy that has to take place within districts to be successful. So I think first and foremost, we love sharing kind of what districts are doing across the country uh, and the great work they're doing. And then it's a time for us to just meet with all of the partners that we have uh, in kind of the business to business side uh, of Discovery Education as well. Yeah, I mean, I can't even begin to fathom how you process looking after uh, um, your territory being the whole of the US. So I just had a an interview with the head of policy at Excel in Ed, so the foundation there. And I think they're, you know, their mission really is to sort of share what policy is happening in the different states. And there's so much variance and, you know, different challenges. So how do you go about kind of dealing with some of that and keeping in touch with all of your various schools or districts and just yeah. keeping on top of it all? It, it's by uh, two things, I'd say, being focused on uh, our district partners. So we are at Discovery Education, uh, extremely focused on K-12 education. So you won't see us in higher ed too often. You won't see us at the community college level, but we really are focused on our K-12 partners, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. and around the world. Um, and then I think, you know, the other one is is having a great team who uh, believe in the mission. Uh, you know, we have a kind of a simple phrase around Discovery Education, do good and we will do well as, a, as an organization. And so we always say if we deliver on our promises to our educational partners, then the business will be fine. And, yeah. uh, and so that's kind of the mission that guides us and, and everybody has to think that way and then it works. <laughs> and so 
I think you mentioned before um, we started recording that you're in 50% of schools, K-12. Yep, in the, in the US, about 50% of K-12 uh, schools in the US. So for those people listening in outside of the US or outside of the UK who aren't familiar with what you do or your breadth of what you do, could you just kind of go back right to the beginning of Discovery Education? Sure. And, yeah, what, it, what exactly it is that you do as well? Yeah, so we started off as, um, you know, for lack of better terms, a video-on-demand service. And so... Uh, when I was in a school system, we used to have a lending library of videotapes and DVDs, and we would get them from a regional service center. Uh, and then one day, uh, when I was still in the school system, I was introduced to our streaming service, and it was a way to digitally deliver those videotapes and DVDs and do it in two to three minute clips and have them aligned to state standards. And so it became a great way to deliver instructional materials. And I think over the past you know dozen years, I've been here 12 years now, we've really evolved from that. So now we deliver almost a million learning objects every day during the school day. Um, and it's anything we can deliver digitally. So it can be games, it can be eBooks. Uh, so it's much broader now than just videos. And then over the last couple of years, we've really diversified and, and our educational partners have asked us to help them in other ways. And so uh, we launched a professional development uh, line of uh, services uh, really about the digital transition. How do we help build capacity in school systems to make that transition from print to digital? Um, and then uh, you know, one of our most exciting recent things is our, our digital textbooks. Uh, so we have something called Tech Book uh, in Science and Social Studies and Math, and and it, it really was built from the ground up to compete with the traditional publishers and 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 a smarter, better way of engaging kids with content in classrooms. And so uh, we really are excited about those initiatives. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I remember um, I sort of mentioned the the textbook versus technology panel that was recorded at the Barbican in London, and you know some of the perspectives there, and it came out just after our one of our UK education ministers had sort of said, uh, Nick Gibb, did you hear about this? When he he sort of said, oh no, textbooks uh, are proven. We've worked with, I think it was Cambridge University Press to show that they're more effective. And so the panel was looking at, um, you know, a mix of opinions on textbooks versus technology. And I think, you know, as is always the way with panels, even if you try and avoid it, everyone sort of ended up agreeing that it was not one or the other. It was a mix of both. Some of the, I guess, objections to pure technology, if you ha- if you describe it like that, were this idea that sort of retention of knowledge through the, the tactile book and, and things like that. I mean, what would you say to educators listening in who you know, are thinking about going purely digital on the, on the sort of resources side of things as well? Yeah, such a great question. And, and so, you know, I often tell people when you walk into a classroom 20 years ago, good instruction wasn't kids staring at a textbook for, you know, 30 kids in a room in rows staring at a textbook for six hours a day. And, you know, today, good instruction is not kids staring at a laptop for six hours a day in rows and so on and so forth. So to your, your point about kids who have to put their hands on things to really understand things or kids who really want to collaborate with others as part of that learning process. You know, we encourage all of that. I mean, those are the types of things that we absolutely want to see. And that's a lot of what our professional development addresses. The difference is we believe that the core instructional materials can just be delivered digitally. We don't have to print them. We don't have to ship them. We don't have to warehouse them. Districts can save half their costs just in those things alone. Um, and then there are things that technology can do that we just couldn't do. So I used to talk a lot about differentiation as, as one of those things. You know, differentiation in kind of your traditional classroom with print textbooks is a difficult process. But now we can automatically assess or seamlessly, I should say, assess students within our digital services. We can dashboard that for teachers. We can, we can recommend resources that they might use to differentiate for those students. So 
really for us, we look through the lens of what do we know about good instruction? I think, you know, after centuries of education now, we know a lot about what good instructional practice looks like. How do we take the tools, the technology, the resources that we have today and support what we know about good instruction at scale? And I think that that's really what we focus on. And we think, you know, the only way you can really do that is through the strategic kind of thoughtful implementation of, of technology. And what, what would you say to the other side of that, which is um, the, the main driver uh, in moving to digital is reducing the cost. So I know that um, Rich Collata's initiative was around um, moving to digital and, you know, a big incentive of, of that was that obviously there's a reduced cost if you're not uh, looking at print tech. So how do we sort of secure the value and the quality of services and you know, whilst moving to digital and make sure that that's sort of retained as well? Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a it's a great question and, and we actually don't lead with the costs. And so I think our argument would be, there is a better way to engage students. There's a better way to deliver instruction in this country and certainly a better way to deliver instructional materials in this country. Um, and so we kind of pin that on. Here are the educational benefits of digital, the ability to differentiate, the ability to deliver multimodal content to, to reach students that learn differently, the ability to integrate formative assessment and react to that immediately as opposed to days later or weeks later in some cases. And so there, there are real educational benefits to delivering instructional content digitally. Um, Ed reports just came out a week ago and they looked at our math tech book and, you know, certainly they've looked at all the major publishers, their, their textbooks as well. Um, and we did incredibly well in that. In fact, I, you know, our, our analysis shows that we outperformed everybody else around math specifically on the Ed reports. So I think from an instructional perspective, it's certainly well documented that we can deliver instruction in a way that makes a real difference for kids. And then by the way, it's half the cost. And so I think that's the lens that I would look at it through. When I was in a school system, I cared most about student achievement. And if I could do that at half the cost, then that really became a compelling argument. And then perhaps you can pump that money back into CPD or an alternative part of the, the school budget. Well, and that's such a critical part too. I mean, that professional development becomes integral into, into what we do about, you know, people don't know this about Discovery because they think of us as a content company. Uh, but about half our partnerships with districts really focus around professional development for that reason. Yeah. I mean, that that's um, one of those discussion points that always crops up. So in the UK, I think they established that 22,000 teachers hadn't had any kind of professional development in the last year. And, you know, you mentioned your course about sort of tech readiness or tech uh, digital literacy for teachers, if I understand it correctly. You know, it's not something that potentially is given a, a great deal of time. So how do we go about addressing that and within existing sort of timeframes and budgets that schools are struggling with. Perhaps you could let me know a little bit about what your CPD offer is and yeah, what you're trying to achieve there. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the difference um, is historically a lot of school systems would buy a day of professional development around this or they'd have the smart board company come in and do one day of PD. Um, and then that would kind of get lost on folks. And it was kind of that once and done professional development. Um, our average term of engagement, so when we work with a school district about this transition from print to digital, on average, we're working with them for about four years. Um, so we have developed something called Digital Leader Core, which is uh, a systematic um, professional development strategy that helps districts make that transition from print to digital by building capacity within those schools. Um, a big part of that is instructional coaching. So one of the things that we often hear from districts is that it's great to have my teachers pulled out into a lab and you know use this technology, but unless it's my kids with, with our infrastructure and technology and our curriculum, it kind of gets lost in translation when they come back to my school. And so a lot of what we do is side-by-side -side coaching with that classroom teacher 
to, to really model best practice around using digital content and digital integration within the classroom. And that's made a real difference for us as we work with schools. So I have one technical question, which is if you, is, is it a million pieces of educational resources used a day? Is that your? Yeah. So yeah. we deliver uh, what we call digital learning objects for our streaming service. So how do you host all of that content? You know, there's always these statistics about YouTube and how much data it consumes. So I'm just thinking about the video content that you have and yeah, all of that. How does that work? Yeah, um, from have you a got a huge Amazon te- Web Service bill. We, we do. So certainly, we we have uh, hosting facilities that we utilize, um, and in different countries. So in Canada, we have a hosting facility because uh, student information shouldn't travel back and forth between borders, and so on and so forth. Now, the technical specifications. I'm not the right person to ask for that one. I wouldn't be the right person to, to, to talk about it either. But uh, no, no one's particularly interested in that. I was just, yeah, I just thought, wow, there must be quite quite a uh, yeah logistical aspect to it. A more interesting question. So prior to joining Discovery Education, you spent 15 years in public education, serving at both the school district and regional service centre levels. So my question is, what was your biggest learning from that experience that you'd share with other senior leaders that listen in? And, you know, perhaps, especially if they're thinking about trying to action change, which is a kind of daily struggle. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think for, uh, and one of the things we focused on, and I, and I think I've, I've brought that perspective uh, as I came to Discovery, is, is that kind of idea of scalability. Um, you know, you walk around GSV and you see a lot of really cool things and, and uh, great technologies. And, um, you know, I, I often tell the story we bring at Discovery, we bring a lot of really smart people, national leaders and thinkers in certain areas, and we whiteboard a lot of things. Um, and there are certain times when you walk out of that room and you might have 10 of the brightest minds in education or on the technology side. And you come up with this great idea and you walk out and you think, if you build that product, there's exactly 10 people that would probably use it because it's, it's, fantastical. But um, at the same time, you know, can, can most teachers in this country grab that given the time constraints they have and the, and the things that are on their plate. So I think one of the things that we focus on a lot is how do we really build services and that professional development in a way that can reach, you know, 20,000 school teachers in Miami-Dade. I mean, and so we're constantly thinking about how do you lead, how do you support good instructional practice with that technology, but how do you do it in a way that's really usable uh, and consumable for people to do at scale. And so um, I think that's, you know, one of the things coming from a district, I, I, it was great to have one or two teachers that were forward leaning and doing really cool stuff in their classroom. But what you really want is that every student in every classroom in that school system has those, has those same opportunities. No, it's a very good point. Otherwise they just leave and that knowledge is kind of gone with them. If you could take the best and the worst parts of the US or the UK education systems, which would you pick and why? Oh my gosh, that's a really tough question. Um, you can take as long as you want. You know, I think one of the, you know, I'll say that, um, you know, one of the challenges that we have in U.S. education, and it still saddens me, is, is just inequity. Uh, you know, so you, you walk into districts in the U.S. and, and around the world. And I mean, I've, I've been um, all over the world as well and, and seen districts that uh, you walk in and they're just beautiful and the facilities are beautiful and there's a culture within the school system uh, that's collaborative and, and forward leaning. Um, and then you walk in other places that just don't have that. I mean, you know, I've, I've walked through metal detectors at schools and, you know, there's, there's places that have real challenges, um, in, in across our country. And I think that always, that always hurts a little bit. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do with, with our content is, is really kind of trying to level that playing field and, and provide digital equity across those. And, and I think that's a challenge for us. And I think it's a challenge for the industry. And I think it's a challenge for everybody. Um, and it's a small part of, of that challenge. And so is that tied back to your kind of funding models and, and how much particular school or district might pay to access content? 
Yeah, so we don't differentiate. Um, and that, that um, when you asked the earlier question, are there things that I brought with me kind of from the school setting to the private sector? Um, I, I don't believe that people should get discounts just because they know how to haggle. Um, so we're pretty steady in our, in our services. We kind of, the, the, we, I, we're incredibly reasonably Everyone priced. Like, oh. <laughs> we're, we're, we're reasonable price, but at the same time, you know, it, someone's not going to get a 20% discount just because they know to ask for a 20% discount. So we've always kind of held the line on that. Um, and, and I'm pretty proud of that. And so I think from that perspective, there is kind of an equity across groups. Uh, and some people don't like that because they're used to everybody discounting if you're this or you're that, or you have yeah. this many students. Um, but we've been pretty solid about saying, you know, we think it's good value and we're going to hold that line. So how do you help address the equity challenge that we just mentioned? Yeah, I think it's through digital equity. Uh, and so when I think of, you know, it, it's, there's, Oftentimes we think of the real world, quote unquote, and what we're preparing students for. And, uh, you know, we, we, there was a great quote from our former FCC chairman who talked about, you know, in Fortune 500 companies in the U.S., if you're going to go get a job, um, how do you get that job? You apply for it online. And if you don't do that, you're going to go into Target. And what are they going to do? They're going to put you on the computer that's online, like in the, literally in the lobby. Um, and so I think from, you know, our perspective, we want to open that world up to all students. You know, there are kids in Miami-Dade School District who, you know, are two miles from the beach and who've never seen the ocean. And we can bring that to them through our content and through digital media and through virtual reality. And, and so I think those are the things when we think about equity and preparing students for the world that they're going to face afterwards is really where we can play that role. Okay, the next question. The digital revolution is pretty pedestrian in the, on the learning side of things. What do you see as the latest trends that you may have picked up here? And obviously, um, we talked about Betsy DeVos speaking here. So what would your message to her be if you haven't spoken to her already? Um, <laughs> that's a, well, you're going to get me in trouble here, Sophie. Uh, you, 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 can, you, know, you can always cloak it in a metaphorical language if you like. Yeah, you know, I, I've I've often said, especially in the U.S., um, the Department of Education is is certainly a place that people look to uh, for guidance. The reality is, a lot of the work in school systems in the U.S. is done at the local level, um, and I think you know, there's that's that's probably a good thing in that um, you know they know what their students have and what they need and the demographics and the types of uh, a community they're they're in, and so I would say you know for the most part provide that leadership. You know, my advice would be provide that leadership, um, but at the same time, try not to tinker around too much with the fundamentals of, of how those schools operate. Because I don't know if it's the same here, but certainly in the UK, the policy change is just constant. So schools are sort of battling with, you know, the next policy implementation, whereas the commonly accepted idea is they actually just want to get on and teach. So I don't know if it's as continuous here, but, or if it, it more plays out at the sort of state level. Yeah, I, it, what, what you see at the state level, and I think that, you know, the fatigue that you see from a lot of educators is oftentimes the change in state standards. And so, um, you know, before Common Core and even somewhat now after Common Core, um, I, that's the thing that we saw people kind of uh, just every three to four years, their state standards would change. And then how do you deal with that from, an, you know, your instructional materials perspective? So, again, I think an advantage of digital um, but I think that was the fatigue that we would often see from folks. Um, you know, now Common Core kind of, there was the hope that that might fix that. And in some places, I think to some degree it may. Um, but those are the types of things that, that we're seeing. So if people are listening in and they would like to connect, how's the best way to go about that? And Absolutely. Yeah. Discoveryeducation.com. So everything starts from there. So uh, in the US, um, you know, we've talked a lot about that business. We also have uh, a great business, Discovery Education Espresso in the UK. 
yeah. um, which is widely distributed with, with primary schools. But either way, come to discoveryeducation.com and we'll get you the right direction. And are you on Twitter? You're a Twitter fan or? I am. Yep. Uh, at Scott underscore Kinney. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Thank you, Sophie. Appreciate it. It's the end of the second day and I'm here with Matthew Johnson from the Cooley Legal Practice. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So if I understand correctly, so Cooley is a law firm with an edtech practice based out of the Silicon Valley, but now you also have an office in London. Yes. So so Cooley is a, an international law firm and we're, we're a full service law firm across all uh, legal fields. We have a strong tech focus and we have also developed probably a, a pretty unique practice focused on the uh, tech industry and, and focusing on emerging companies in the space up through, through, through large companies that um, in, in any way kind of touch into the education space. So whether it's direct to consumer or working with schools, um, dealing with kind of the variety of unique uh, market challenges that, that exist in that space. And so you've been here ASU GSV this week, and there's obviously quite an interesting mix of VCs and startups and scale-ups and blue chips in the, in the space. What, what are the type of conversations that you're having? Because I saw your, your uh, suite is just around the corner and that you know, you're obviously like a prominent sponsor of the event as well. It is yes, and and um, no, it's been it's been great. It's always a bit of a whirlwind, and um, the the meetings sort of sort of you know stack up back to back, and it's a good time to connect with clients, to make new acquaintances, to get to hear what's going on in the tech space um, from the investment side, from the company side. There's I, I think some some great conversations and. Um, you know, I think everyone is here kind of thinking about what is next, what is going to be the direction that um, that we're going to be going over the next, you know, year or so. And in terms of the legal side of things, what are the sort of top three issues that come up again and again that people are asking you for advice on around ed tech? Sure. I, and it can vary depending on the type of company, what, what, what space they're in, uh, you know, a school that's working with colleges and universities, one of the, the, the top issues that they have to deal with is the variety of complex, you know, legal regulations that go to accessing Title IV. And if you're a company that's providing um, an OPM to a university uh, or, you know, working on their online courses, you're going to be responsible for knowing those obligations and complying with them and, and structuring your agreement in a way that, that, that meets all those various complex regulations. At the K-12 level, privacy is by far kind of the top issue right now. And, and it's an increasingly complex issue because unlike federal aid, it's, it's actually been mostly handled at the state level. So instead of, there is one federal law called FERPA that, that oversees it, but it's, 50 years old now or 40 years old now, and it's largely not changed in that time. So it's largely rightly viewed as outdated. And in, in response to that, states have kind of taken it um, on their own. And of course, whenever you have 50 states trying to pass a law, they're going to have 50 different opinions on how it should be done. And so managing that pathway for, for companies that, especially those that contract with schools has been um, complex. And then the other thing that we've been seeing a lot of is in, in the career and workforce training side, the non-traditional adult learning programs, providing, you know, micro-credentials and those sorts of things, dealing with, again, those same state laws that regulate what it means to be a provider of education, to be providing instruction and, and dealing with the various 
um, sometimes not exactly um, or maybe somewhat outdated or not exactly aligned with what these providers are That's doing to, to provide. You know, so you go to all the bother of making a really innovative company and then you get trapped <laughs> just by the get, same regulation. Yes, just to get get told, oh, well, you can't do that. Um, yeah. And, and it, what's, what's interesting is I think we're at a time now, you know, I think um, there is a lot of support for the innovation. There's a lot of skepticism too. And I think it's it's managing those two and it, and it takes um, doing it the right way because all it takes is one or two bad examples to to give a bad idea of, of the whole sector to regulators. And so understanding where they're coming from and their role of consumer protection and making sure that it's not a, a fly-by-night entity and that they're really, you know, successful in their outcomes is, is important. And so on that front, have you seen any shift away from freemium models, which perhaps trade on this idea of data collection and, you know, people becoming a bit more savvy to, you know, who's owning that student data and yeah, sensitivities around that? I mean, I mean, not to say it too broadly, but I think you are seeing a shift away from freemium. I think it's a challenging business model in the ed tech space um, because to some extent, even if you want to sell that data, there are a lot of restrictions that make that not really a successful way to go. You're not going to be able to. So that model for most companies is going to be a challenge in the space. And so tell us about your uh, London office as well, because obviously you and I spoke uh, about what's happening with the London EdTech scene and lots of people listening in will either be, you know, on the educational institution side or on the on the tech side of things and interested to know about what you're doing there. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, so Cooley opened up a an office in London and I think it was early 2015. And um, it's been growing at a fast pace since then. It's a very tech focused office. We have one of the top privacy groups in in Europe based out of there. And we have been working with them very closely on companies that are, are based in the EU and looking to come over to the US or vice versa or or companies that are in that space and especially dealing with the complex, you know, privacy obligations that are that come into play um, for those companies. And it's it's been a great, great relationship and we've been really building it out and, and we're excited to um, continue to improve that and to um, to get involved in London Net Tech Week coming up. One other question. So, well, there's, there's a couple in there. So one is around GDPR. I don't know if you're, you're sort of following that debate. And obviously, I think lots of higher education institutions in the UK are sort of starting to think they better get their head around it. Um, I don't know if you're seeing that come come in and through the London office as well. We, we are. Um, it's certainly something that our London office is is very on top of. And in fact, I think it's top of mind for them and something that is, is impacting our clients. Yeah. I mean, the, the other question I had was around, I think more and more so whether you're, you know, a school that's looking to go international or a university that's thinking about having satellite offices overseas or an ed tech company who are pretty much now from day dot thinking about mm-hmm their services and products internationally. So how do you then go about, you know, the, the legal side of things as you cross borders and data is going cross border and that kind of thing? Right. And and it is complicated. And I think my biggest recommendation for a company that's looking to do that, looking to cross borders is go about it strategically. The answer is very rarely, no, you can't do that or you're not going to be able to make it work. But it may be, you know, these are the steps you need to take on the outset. And it is almost always more efficient, less stressful, and cheaper to deal with issues before they become problems than it is to try to remedy them afterward. 
And that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned earlier that it's bad for the sector in terms of, you know, if there are bad examples, they don't reflect well on the regulators or whoever mm-hmm. maybe. Can you kind of allude to what kind of bad examples or bad practices um, have happened previously without uh, kind of putting, any, putting your finger on anyone in particular? Sure. I mean, I, I think there was the proprietary educational um, institutions in the U.S. is a sector that kind of came under this scrutiny over the past five or six years where you had a couple of you know schools that weren't following best practices when it came to their recruiting methods or their advertising methods or how they were you know attracting students and having a few that were you know taking those those steps that were contrary to best practice contrary to the law in some cases draws attention on everyone and the assumption is is that well everyone must be doing the same thing um, I've, and- I've got like this kind of flashing word in my head that I I want to say and I shouldn't which is like Trump University <laughs> <laughs> and I don't say it don't say it but I, yeah th- those I mean I think we had the same in the UK where you get universities they you know advertise they just get a postal address and mm-hmm. I can't, they're sort of sham universities and yeah you, people get their kind of certificate that they can go on with and it's a big problem but- it, it is and again you know some of it may be things that people don't even think are issues. You know, for example, in, in the Trump University case, using the term university there was problematic because a university means a very specific thing under you know, most U.S. state laws. It means an institution that can grant a degree. And if you can't get, grant a degree, that can be a problem if you're calling yourself a university because students may not quite understand the credential that they're receiving at the end. Mm. So is that why we have a lot of like bridge you or something you in the in the sort of newer iterations sometimes of- yeah i mean it, it it can vary but sometimes you know that's why you'll see uh, you know institute or academy mm-hmm. or, or other terms besides university which is a particularly sensitive that's term that's very interesting yeah. how can people connect with you if they want to find out more about what you're up to sure so i mean you know one of the key things that we're we just rolled out and, and we're excited about is that we've started a new blog um, focused on the education market and particularly on on the edtech market it's ed.cooley.com and, and and yeah a lot of great content we just had a pretty well received article on the recent news uh, in the US about the Kaplan and Purdue agreement that that's really kind of making waves I think at this conference as well as dealing with a variety of other legal issues that come up both in the US and, and internationally Excellent. And uh, that's free to access, I'm yes, guessing, it's not free. by the hour. <laughs> no, no, that's that's completely free. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Awesome. And are you on Twitter as well yourself? I am not, but Cooley is. Okay. And it's probably at Cooley, I'm it's guessing. At, yes. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. Well, that brings us to the end of this sixth episode from the 10-part ASU GSV Summit series. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to find out about our upcoming meetup drinks, cool jobs currently circulating and other announcements. For full references, show notes and book recommendations, go to theedtechpodcast.com and for competitions and more, go to our Facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash podcast edtech. If you like what you hear, why not drop us a loving review on iTunes and come back next time for our following episode featuring the editor of EdSurge on the current state of play in EdTech.